Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers the highest placed Austrian contestant in Series 2 were going for gold, just missing out on that trip to the Isle of Mauritius, was Stefan Dias. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one's ever seemed to, is quiz expert David Smith. David, what are you up to and where can we find it? I'm on uh, DVD Smith on most things, you know, Twitter, Twitch, uh, Instagram, things like that. The places to find me are probably Twitter, that's where most of my outfit is. I do have a Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash DVD Smith, where I am very bad at video games. Um, But yeah, that's where you can find me. Well, I was going to ask if you've ever played your first choice on Twitch, but we're actually talking about the TV version of it, which I think people may not even know was a game to begin with. Anyway, let's hear the theme tune and find out what it is afterwards. Despite his great big muscles and his really big ray gun, Jim is still an earthworm, but then he's the only one with a super suit to make him really super strong. Jim can be a winner if we only sing along. Earthworm Jim! We think he's mighty fine. Earthworm Jim! A hero for all time! Okay, that was very clearly the theme song from Earthworm Jim. David, what was going on here? So this was um, a period in the early 90s when every sort of minor successful video game got a cartoon spin-off of some kind. I think uh, Donkey Kong Country had one with the worst CGI you've ever seen. Honestly, go and look it up. It's amazing. Super Mario Bros. 3 had one. Just Super Mario Bros. 3. You know, the actual... <laughs> It was a spin-off of the game Super Mario Bros. 3, and the title of the cartoon was The Adventures of Super Mario Bros. 3, which must have confused the hell out of people who were thinking, what happened to 1 and 2? I think Sonic the Hedgehog had something like three different cartoons over that time. One of the games that came out around that time was called Earthworm Jim. It was moderately successful. It was on sort of the Super Nintendo and the Mega Drive and things like that, and it managed to get a cartoon spin-off in the mid-90s. And I can remember, I, I played the game first of all, and then I found out they were making a cartoon show of it. And it was on um, Channel 4 on Sunday lunchtime, I think it was. And I can remember being about seven years old, sitting around with the whole family, sort of, you know, grandparents and aunts and uncles and everyone like that. And everyone finding this show so funny. The quirky thing about Earthworm Jim was that it was one of the first video games I can remember that was actually funny. I always thought that if I ever went on Rule of Three, I would take a video game on because video games as a medium don't really have comedy in the same way that films or television shows. It's not really a genre. But Airform Gem, the game and the cartoon show, have this kind of surreal, slapstick, kind of Rick and Morty style of humour in them. I should really explain what it is, actually, what the, um, what the setting is, because I'm talking about it without anyone knowing what it is. It's about a sort of intergalactic space battle involving a high-tech super suit that the person who wears it gets all these super strength and superpowers and things like that. And during a galactic battle, the suit is lost, falls to Earth, lands in a random field, and an earthworm crawls into the neck of the suit and is transformed into this superhero called Earthworm Jim. The game kind of starts you off with, kind of gets you right into the throw of the action, and the cartoon kind of picks up exactly where that left off. It just basically has Jim and his sidekick, Peter Puppy, going on a whole bunch of adventures, rescuing his princess. It's just, it's got the most surreal cast of characters you've ever seen. It's really funny, it's really well written. It's actually got some good talent behind it as well, because Earthworm Jim is voiced by Dan Castellaneta, who, for people who maybe recognise that name, he's the voice of Homer Simpson. So this is a proper sort of really funny, really well-acted cartoon show, and I just remember really, really liking it as a kid, but it only got something like half a dozen, not, not half a dozen episodes, about two dozen episodes or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it was part of a wave of, there were lots of cartoons around then. I mean, some of them were aimed at kids, some of them were aimed at adults, but kind of things like Beavis and Butthead, Duckman, Ren and Stimpy were, it was weird, they were, it was like they were pulling backwards and forwards in time at the same time. They were very influenced by earlier styles of cartoons, but with a very deconstructionist humour. And one of the things I remember most about Earthworm Jim was that one of the biggest fans of it was John Peel, who was always talking about it on this late night show on Radio 1, which, you know, it gets forgotten now. People just depict John Peel as being about the music. He was a great raconteur. He was really enthusiastic about things, but he was always talking about Earthworm Jim. Somewhere, I've got a tape of him talking about it to Stuart Lee and Richard Herring. They were discussing it on Radio 1. And, you know, it had that wide appeal because of that surreal humour. And another way 
weird radio one thing related to it was you mentioned dan castellanetta being the voice of earthworm jim around that time this just goes to show how much things change the simpsons obviously it was huge but it wasn't over here it wasn't quite the megalith it became and he'd just been punted out to be on various shows to promote that and earthworm jim at the same time i think it was his management that sent him on tour rather than fox or whatever yeah but he showed up on danny baker's radio one show danny baker still tells his story now that they had him as a guest because they were obsessed with the simpsons on that show and they just said to him can you do some jingles for us as homer and he said oh yeah he just recorded himself saying things like Danny Baker, he'll tell us what to do. Obviously, they're in the proper voice, unlike me. But as, yeah. as Danny says now, imagine only a couple of years later what you would have had to pay for that and the hoops you would have had to jump through. And yet they just said to him, can you do it? It's like, no problem. And it's a shame Earthworm Jim didn't take off to the same extent. I know. I, I mean, I guess that's kind of the luck of animation. I mean, The Simpsons is sort of about a, a sort of normal family. And so it's kind of more relatable, I guess. Because when you look at the cast of characters in Earthworm Jim, because it was all it's all the creation of a guy called Doug Tenaple, who wrote the games and came up with all these characters. And they've just got the most crazy sort of cast. I mean, one of the villains is called Professor Monkey for a Head. And... <laughs> He actually has an upside down monkey grafted onto his head, a live living monkey who sort of he kind of has a symbiotic relationship with. The princess in it is called Princess What's Her Name. That's her actual name. I don't know whether that's sort of commentary on how damsels in distress are almost sort of, you know, kind of cookie cutter or whether it's a kind of symptom of that. Oh, yeah. Earthworm Jim has a pet and his pet is a sentient lump of snot. It's actually just a living. It's like a giant pile of flubber that he lives with. I think that might be why it maybe didn't take off quite as well because it's just so crazy. I mean, it's really funny what they do with it. And they do play on all the sort of normal tropes of those kind of cartoons where they, they break the fourth wall a lot. The characters are constantly berating the narrator for making fun of them and saying they're never going to get out of this situation. The main villain of it is a really sort of disgusting kind of insect creature. Her name is Queen Slug for a Butt, but her full name is something like Queen Pulsate... I've got it written down, hang on. Her name is Queen Pulsating, Bloated, Festering, Sweaty, Pus-Filled, Malformed Slug for a Butt. That is her full name. And she's this giant sort of queen termite, which I didn't realise was a real animal until I saw it on QI about six months ago. It's this giant sort of, it's kind of, she's got a tiny body and then a giant sort of rear end. But that gives you an idea of just how surreal this cartoon was. And yet we were all just gathered around the television, just laughing at it. I mean, the writing was so good. And I am really surprised that it never really took off in the way that other shows did. Although when you look at other cartoon shows of that kind of time, they all kind of ran for about that length. I mean, something like one of the famous facts that I love to churn out every once in a while is that Wacky Races only had 17 episodes. A show that's rotated for about 50 years or whatever it is only ran for about 17 episodes. And so the fact that Airform Gym ran for, you know, what was it, 25, 26 episodes or something like that, maybe that was just what they did back then. And The Simpsons is just this juggernaut that kind of was the exception to the rule. Yeah, well, you mentioned the surrealism. The thing that I really remember about it was there would be these bits, I believe they were before the ad bumpers in America, but it would suddenly cut to one of the villains like Psycho or Evil the Cat and Henchrat, who were my favourites, on the phone to the refuse collectors or something, just doing something mundane for about oh, yeah. 30 seconds, and they'd say, and now back to Earthworm Jim. Yeah, I guess that was kind of a parody of when they used to have, because like The Simpsons itself started out as kind of sort of bumpers between the ads of the Tracy Ullman show. So maybe it was a kind of a pastiche of that. But then also it was maybe it was because they had this diverse sort of wide array of characters and they wanted to give them all something to do. Because most of the time, Airform Jim was normally off on his own sort of little adventure and he wasn't really battling any of the villains. So anytime they just wanted to get more of the characters in, then they would do these sorts of things. I can remember it was sort of an infomercial for Psycho's villains training. He had a sort of a villain academy, and it, it featured all these kind of sort of talking heads of all the other characters, including Earthworm Jim going, oh yeah, no, Psycho trains the best villain. Whenever I go up against them, he's always the one that has trained them. And it was really, part of it again was sort of going, well, can we get back to the main story, please? But also kind of going, actually, this is really funny. <laughs> They go to these different planets, and these different planets are kind of, it was almost making fun of the video game in a way. 
because they say we're going to the planet of smashing hammers and it's just this planet where all these hammers are just jumping up and down and smashing into the ground and it was kind of like it was a level from a video game one of the um really surreal things and this is straight out of the games as well is that anytime jim rescues the princess she immediately is crushed by a cow that falls out of the sky. Which, if you play the game, in the very first level, you launch this cow into space and it's never seen again. And you forget about it until right at the end of the game, after you've beaten the final boss and you rescue the princess. And then she's crushed by this cow that has just landed back to Earth. Anytime he rescues Princess What's-Her-Name, you just see this random cow just land, which isn't explained in the cartoon. It's a reference to a game that if you haven't seen, you haven't played the game, you're not going to understand. You're going to go... Why has a cartoon just crushed the princess? Okay, well, speaking of computer games with a very strange style of humour in them, that's pretty much where we're staying for your next choice, which is a game that's kind of for children, but maybe when you find out a bit more about it, shouldn't be. No, I need them in the morning. You get into town right now. Yes, sir. Hurry home, Torin. Don't be late for dinner. Okay, Mom. This isn't what I want in life. I should be a hero. Heroes don't run errands. Right, Boogle? Hey, Boogle? Boogle! Asleep again? Okay, that was a cutscene from Torrin's Passage, the 1995 Sierra Online game for PC and Mac. David, who was Torin and what was his passage? So this was a game in which you play a character called Torin. His parents are kidnapped by an evil witch. And I got this game in 1995 when we got our first proper Windows PC. We got this wallet of CDs in them that had a whole bunch of different random software on them. It had things like it had Encarta Encyclopedia, if anyone remembers that, with its dungeon crawling game. And then lots of different sorts of little puzzle games. I think Theme Park was in there. And then this random adventure game called Torrance Passage, which when I was bored one day, I decided to give it a go. And I fell in love with this game completely. And anytime I lent it to one of my friends, they would return it to me and go, that was one of the best games I've ever played. And yet no one seems to have heard of it. It's a kind of point-and-click adventure game where you have to lead Torin through... So he lives on the outer layer of this planet, and the witch that he has to go and face is in the core. And so he has to go through these five different levels of the planet. And he meets all these really interesting characters. Again, kind of like Airform Jim, I remember it being funny. I I think I'm drawn to games that are funny. And it's really well written. It's by a creator called Al Lowe. And the only other franchise that Al Lowe is known for is called Leisure Suit Larry, which, if you've ever seen it, is basically the video game equivalent of the Playboy Mansion. Every other game he's written has been for adults about very adult content. And then one day he just suddenly turned around and went, actually, no, I want to make a game that my kids can play. And Torrin's Passage was the result. And I love that game. I, I went back and played it recently. I have a, a series on my Twitch channel that I do called Retro Retread. And the very first game that I did for that, where I go back to games from my childhood, was Torrin's Passage. I just remember it being full of little jokes. There are so many different inventive ways that you can die in the game. You've got to solve puzzles like um, how to retrieve Pete from a bog without drowning yourself. And it's so inventive in the way that it can kill you. And every time you die, you get this pop-up message with a funny little quip about how you died. It's, it's really sort of cool little humour like that. I think in the second world, there's a family that you go and visit where their entire life is a, is a sitcom. Like you walk into their house and all you can hear is canned laughter after every single line that they say, whether it's funny or not. Again, it's kind of, it breaks the fourth wall, which was the first time I'd ever seen a game do that. There's a moment in, I think, the, the last level of the game where Torin is crawling through an air vent and he bumps his head on the menu. So if you know um, if you know Windows or if you know any of those kind of games, when you move your mouse to the top left, a pop-up drop-down menu would appear with like file and health and things like that on it. And Torin bumps his head on that at one point and asks you, and he says, uh, sorry, can you get that for me? And asking you to close the menu so we can keep crawling through. And I just remember it being just really funny and really, really underappreciated. I think that game deserved a lot more than it got. There's one quest where you have to get berries for a guard so that he'll let you through. And uh, you get the berries for him and you ask him, so what kind of berries were those? And he just replies, wow, those were Chuck berries, of course. And then there's a little rim shot. It's full of those kind of little jokes, and I went back and played it again to see if it was full of um, sort of jokes that adults would get that kids didn't. 
And it is. It completely is. It's one of those games that the whole family could play. And I remember absolutely loving it. It was meant to be the first of, I think, a five-part series, but it never sold well enough to get any more than just part one. And part one is its own game and its its own self-contained story, but I would have loved to see more than that. Yeah, well, apparently, Allo, who, as you say, he was better known for Leisure Suit Larry, which I think is worth giving a bit of context to. It wasn't just a kind of adult, naughty sex game. The whole point of it is that he's never really successfully thinks of himself as a lounge lizard. And it's like, it's a bit like a 70s British film, should we say. There's always the promise of something happening, and Larry messes it up because he's quite naff, really, I think is the best way of butting it. But apparently he got the idea to do a game he said for all the family when he went to see Mrs. Doubtfire with his daughter and he realised that they were roaring laughing at the same things and there were other jokes in it that only he seemed he was chuckling to himself and just went straight over his daughter's head and they weren't the sort where people could say you know how dare you put that in something meant for children and he thought why don't we do a game like that yeah and that's that's exactly how it was pitched and I think what's interesting is that it doesn't get described as a clone of because it's very much in the style of Monkey Island and Grim Fandango and all the scum VM point and click games which really honestly it was kind of following in the wake of but because it has this very different style of humor you know it's a very different style of humor to monkey island i think people didn't really notice that yeah because it was about 95 it came out it was kind of falling at the tail end of um i think broken sword and games like that sort of point and click adventure games where the market was kind of saturated for them and the sierra the company that published it were the kings of the PC game at this time. Their most successful game was a few years later when they released Half-Life, and then they were bought out. But it was one of those things where it did kind of suffer a little bit from the same kind of problems that those kind of point-and-click adventure games did, where you'd have to play a game called Hunt the Pixel, where there would be one tiny little bit of the screen that you had to click on to successfully continue in your progress. And you just spent hours looking for this one little bit of screen that you had to click on that you didn't see. But for me, that was the first style of that game that I'd ever played. So, you know, for me, it was completely fresh. And it may just have been that the industry at that time was saturated with them. And then people started moving on to other genres. But I definitely think if anyone's looking for a sort of a game with a bit of sort of quirky humor, good characters and a good writing, good jokes, it's definitely one that I would uh, I would definitely recommend. Well, apparently a lot of the animators that worked on it went on to work for Pixar, but there was also, apparently they started work on the sequel, which, for the reasons you state, never actually came out. But elements of it were incorporated into a later Leisure Suit Larry game where he actually plays Torrin's Passage. Really? Oh, wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> As part of his, well, lounging. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, at least it survived in something. When you get to the end of the game, you get a whole bunch of different items that you use over the course of the game. And as soon as Torin uses one, he normally disposes of it. And you get to the end of the game, you're faced with the witch who doesn't know that you're there. And you've got two items in your inventory that you can use. You've got a book of spells, which you're supposed to use on her, or you've got a set of bagpipes. And if you want, you have the option to play the bagpipes. You've snuck up on her. You've snuck into her lair. You can see her. You're meant to use the book of magic spells on her to surprise her. But if you stand there and play the bagpipes, she turns around and she kills you instantly. And instead of getting the normal sort of death message, there'd be an audio clip of someone going, well, that wasn't what's supposed to happen, or something like that. You actually get a personal recorded message from Al Lowe himself that's about two minutes long where he's just going, wow, I didn't think anyone would actually do that. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's a really cool little Easter egg where he's just thinking, if this person tries this, that's my kind of player. That's the kind of humour that I want to see. Someone who gets to the final boss and decides to play the bagpipes at them. And I just thought that was... When I got that, I thought, I like this guy. I like this guy a lot. Well, there was a thing now for a lot of games of that era sort of being remastered and repackaged and put out, taking advantage of new technology. Well, I say that, you know, actually being able to play them on current versions of Windows is a start. Name, oh, yeah. No names there. But it doesn't seem to have happened with Torrent's Passage. And I wonder what the issue is there. Well, it is available because, again, like you say, I still have all of these old Windows 95 discs but if you try and play them, if you even have a computer that has a CD drive anymore if you try and play them, you either have to try and run your Windows in compatibility mode or sometimes the colours will be screwed up because it's not used to an HD television but thankfully there's a website called GOG.com which has taken a whole bunch of these old 90s PC games and 
converted them to work on modern computers. And that's how I was able to play Todd's Passage on Twitch. So thankfully, Todd's Passage is available to play these days. And hopefully, if I uh, if I have kids one day, that's one of the games I'm going to give to them because it's a fantastic game. I can I can never sing that game's praises enough. And have they updated the window that he bumps his head on? Uh, no, they haven't. That whole interface is entirely intact. It's all within <laughs> the game. I, it's, it's brilliant. Okay, we're moving completely away from computer games for the moment to your next choice. And I can't think of a decent way of thinking into this. So, this is a team movie, which is a bit more interesting than you might think. What's your name? Will Burton. What's yours? The five is silent. I'm Charlotte. Nice to meet you. I've known you since fifth grade. Oh. It's a night that belongs to only the best. The winner gets an actual record deal. Sweet. I'm starting a band. And a few who don't know better. He's a paper boy. You know he's crook. He likes the girls that got the junk. It's embarrassing. I think if you tried signaling, people would honk less. They don't need to know my business. It's not really a privacy issue. are against them. You guys are going up against glory dogs. This is crazy. It's time to step aside. Do you have a head injury? Paula. All they need is each other. What are the early warning signs of a heart attack? You gotta go for it. Carpe diem. Do the thing that scares you. Shalka, Vanessa Hudgens, Galen Cannell, and Lisa Kudrow. She pretty? Inappropriate! We are not having this discussion now. You like her, like her. Shut up. You kissed her yet? I wouldn't even know what to do. Start by gently moving a strand of hair from her face. Nice. Band Slam. Okay, that was a clip of I Can't Go On, I'll Go On in the 2009 film Band Slam. David, who were they and what were they up to? I was wondering when I chose this, I was wondering if I'd broken the record for the most recent thing to appear on your show. So this is a film that I saw in the cinema with a friend with whom I would go and see a whole bunch of films during university. Bless her, she didn't have the best radar when it came to picking good films to watch. Like <laughs> Every time we went to the cinema, I would pick a film one time, she would pick a film another time, and we would just go with whatever our choice was. And I would be taking us to see things like Hot Fuzz, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo... And she would be taking us to see things like Eddie Murphy's Norbit. And um, so, Somebody yeah, I, went to see Norbit? I oh, yeah. I, I, I have to confess that I have paid money to see Eddie Murphy's Norbit in the cinema. So it got to 2009 and we were looking for something to watch and we'd exhausted all of the big films. And she found this film called Band Slam, which she said, you'll probably like this. You know, it's got rock music in it. It's about a rock band at school. And I'm thinking, OK, this is going to be some sort of cheesy school of rock ripoff. And I looked at who was in it and I only recognize two names Lisa Kudrow who plays the main character's mum and Vanessa Hudgens who is from High School Musical and this came out about something like six months after High School Musical trilogy finished and so I'm thinking okay this is going to be a pile of rubbish but we'll go and see it whatever and I ended up loving this film I still love this film I watched this film this week it is so funny if there is anyone out there who has heard of it the main reason they've probably heard of it is that it was the last film ever to feature an appearance by david bowie it's it's a teen high school movie it's your traditional sort of american high school music movie but it plays with all the tropes that you get with the sort of battle of the bands and everything like that because the main character isn't a musician he's sort of he's like a walking encyclopedia of music and he transfers to a new school because he's getting bullied and this girl finds him and asks him to manage their band. He's got this encyclopedic knowledge of bands like the Velvet Underground and all this indie rock and things like that. And the way that he narrates the film is through letters to David Bowie. So the film starts with him saying, Dear David Bowie. And he basically, he uses David Bowie's inbox as his own sort of Twitter account because he just completely, every single thing that happens in his life, he treats David Bowie's email address like a teenage diary. Everything that he does, he just says, Dear David Bowie, and then explains what's going on. Then it gets to the end of the film, his band I Can't Go On, I'll Go On has gone viral, and David Bowie appears on screen and writes him an email back for the first time in his life. He's written to David Bowie his entire life, he's never heard back, and then finally he gets a reply from David Bowie, and it's the last time we ever see David Bowie 
in a film before he dies. Yeah, well, that's the really interesting thing about it for me, was all I really knew about this film before you mentioned it was that Bowie had been in it, because there's that whole weird thing about... There's that public perception that he was in complete hiding between was reality in 2003, but that then was his he last was... album, yeah. Yeah, he was seriously ill after that, and then obviously he came back the next day in 2013, so it's pretty much a 10-year stretch of people think he did absolutely nothing but when you look into it there are all kinds of things he did i mean he wasn't he had actually said for a while no tours no albums but he curated the highline festival he did sleeve notes for reissues of people like noy and iggy pop he did art he sold to his website he appeared on quite a lot of other people's albums but it's like obscure people that he liked rather than any celebrity collaborations one of which was scarlett johansson's album for such a in inverted commas, high-profile collaboration, that's almost completely unknown. Obviously, he attended Duncan Jones's movie premieres. He sent an email telling Bono how much he disliked the U2 Spider-Man musical, which is possibly <laughs> the best thing he ever did. Did small bits of acting like this here and there. It's interesting that there was an interview during that time where a reporter said to him, on, you know, how's David Bowie getting on? And she said, well, I don't know. I'm married to David Jones. Oh, yeah, And I wow. think that was more of a loaded phrase than it might appear on face value because in some ways he was going back to being David Jones who he was in the 60s pursuing all this earlier interests like the acting the art the telling Bono to leave Spider-Man alone I'd like to think that even before he knew who Bono was that was on his to-do list but there was that whole stretch where he just spent all that time doing his own thing basically and obviously fans knew what he was doing and there's that brilliant tale of the that guy who's had Adam Buxton's podcast talking about he actually befriended Bowie through the Bowie that forum where he's posting anonymously, just chatting to people about his own music, which is a lovely story. But he was so active, and the fact that he'd do something like this, I think it shows he thought, I like the sound of that, I want to do it. Yeah. And it's interesting that in The Complete David Bowie by Nicholas Pegg, obviously he covers every film Bowie was in, and he's somebody who, he pulls no punches about when things are low quality, like anyone who knows what the Linguini incident is, that gets a kicking, the Tonight album, Rupert the Riley, that 70s demo he has a quality threshold and he yeah he has mixed feelings about things like absolute beginners and the second tin machine album but stresses their positives but this there are two phrases used in his write-up about it which are he calls bowie's cameo the icing on the cake of the immensely likable film and says it's by no means the only thing to enjoy in this movie. And yeah, that was Nick is quite an acerbic man. He has opinions on things, and yeah. he was clearly charmed by this movie. And deservedly so. It's it's wonderful. I mean, I know nothing about high school musical apart from one of the posters looked like in a weird bit of coincidence, sort of with the Bowie theme, looked like the cover of the first suicide album, the way the cast was spread out dressed in red. Looked like that weird bloodshot that says suicide in it. <laughs> But that's the extent of my knowledge. But I thought this was a great film. It's really good. And this is, because like you, I hadn't seen High School Musical. And I thought this was going to be, when, as soon as I thought Vanessa Hudgens was in it, I was thinking, it's going to be the standard sort of thing. This is going to be, I've been dragged to so many films like Step Up and things like that, Bring It On, all these kind of high school films that are basically the same thing. But I mean, the first time you meet Vanessa Hudgens' character, she's this kind of lone wolf, this kind of sarcastic, really emotionless character. And then she introduces herself and she says her name is Sam, but she spells her name with a silent five. Yes! <laughs> and as soon as I saw that, I thought, okay, maybe she's not who I think she is. It's filled with all these brilliant sort of little jokes and really, it kind of it felt a bit like 21 Jump Street to me in that you're going in expecting a normal high school film and actually... You know, it's playing with all the tropes of things like that. Also, as it gets into the second half of the film, obviously they do have the Battle of the Bands and things like that, but there is a sort of emotional backstory to it. It's not just a kid who's getting bullied at school. It's all this kind of, there's a death halfway through, and then the main character's past comes back to haunt him. He's trying to reinvent himself and make himself, well, not, not, not reinvent himself, but he's trying to leave his past behind and sort of make friends, really. The way that it happens, it's sort of they do. They play with the they play with the tropes of your standard high school film, and I would yeah, it's another one of those things where it did so terribly at the box office, and I I can't believe it when I saw the numbers because it had a twenty five million dollar budget and it made twelve million dollars worldwide, which is nothing at all. I mean, to put that in perspective, do you know how much Eddie Murphy's Norbit made at the cinema? I don't think I'm 
going to like the answer. $160 million. I mean, that has the that has the A-list Eddie Murphy factor, but still, it made 12 times as much money as this film. And I read on the Wikipedia page, critics were blaming the marketing on it because it basically looked like another high school musical film. And so it just kind of crashed and burned. I watched it again this week thinking... I'm going to go back to this. It's going to have the typical tropes. I'm going to go, yeah, it was all right, but it's not as good on reflection. But I still laughed my head off at this film. It was so good. Well, I think if anyone's not convinced, I think the most important thing to look at is a soundtrack album. There are things on there where it's got Road by Nick Drake, which is from Pink Moon. And for anyone who doesn't know, Road is a song I sing sarcastically to one of my friends when they were being a bit miserable because it's <laughs> very, very bleak song. There's The Bell Underground and Nico on there that might not quite be the black angels death song but you know to have that in a film aimed at teenagers but the really weird thing is there's a song by shark on there now do you actually know who shark are uh, i'm guessing you're not talking about shaquille o'neal no sadly <laughs> that would be worth hearing you know they're a band from liverpool who just suffered from immense bad luck continually things like the master tapes went missing on one of their albums and i think they eventually tracked down the cassette copy of it in a hire car in america all kinds of things kept happening just when they were poised on you know during the whole mad Chester thing, they had some really bad luck during the whole Britpop thing, then oh, yeah. sort of get critical attention in the late 90s and again, stuff just kept happening, and you know, they were a really good band, Arthur Lee from Love you know, the legendary 60s band yeah. when he played the UK he used them as his backing band and to oh, me, wow. that is a real seal of approval but to see Shaq on the soundtrack of a big budget mainstream Hollywood film I was a bit taken aback the soundtrack is so good and yeah when you go in to watch a film like this you know a teenage American film and the lead character starts talking about the Velvet Underground, talking about David Bowie. The, the film opens with Rebel Rebel, and it's not the sort of film that you'd be expecting that. There's a scene where he goes to New York and he visits the abandoned CBGBs and talks about all the bands that played there and all the artists like Patti Smith and talks about the, the amount of musical influence that that venue holds in a high school movie. And I was just, I was blown away by that because I'm a, I'm a rock fan. I'm a classic rock fan. And... I was not expecting that, whatever. And he goes, he does this monologue about how punk was invented at CBGBs. And if there was no, if there wasn't this place, there'd be no Sex Pistols. And if there was no Sex Pistols, there'd be no U2. And if there was no U2, there'd be no Killers. And does this whole thing. You can tell that the people that were writing this film were big music fans. And like you say, if they've got deep cuts like that coming through on the soundtrack. I mean, the original songs are great as well. But it is the, the licensed tracks, which span a whole different, a whole era you can tell that they knew what they were talking about when they were writing this film. You could tell that they were big, big music fans. There is that strange thing, though, about I mean, it is almost completely forgotten, I would say. And it seems to affect recent films more than older films, is that if things don't make a certain amount of money, they just... It's not even that the studios, you know, sort of disown them, because you can still make money putting them on Netflix and used to be very cheap DVDs you could sell things on, there's TV showings and so on, but it's like the public let them fall down a black hole. It's really odd. I can't understand it. If something doesn't gain traction when it comes out, there isn't that build, like, you know, years ago you used to get with things like, I suppose The Wicker Man would be the best example, where, you know, nobody really saw it when it came out and then through TV showings and so on, builds a reputation. There's quite a lot of films like that over the years, but it does doesn't seem to happen anymore. I think it's to do with just the disposable nature of media these days. There are so many things being made. Because if it happened back in the day, a film would either get repeat showings in the cinema or it would be shown on television on one of the five channels that there were. And now when you're in an era where there are thousands of television channels, thousands of streaming services, you've got people churning out, um, I mean, to borrow, a, to borrow a term from the gaming world, they're churning out shovelware, is what they call it. Just where they're just they're picking up this rubbish and they're just shoveling it out there. And there are so many sort of disposable films and television shows and things like that that you do get the occasional gem that if it doesn't make a splash immediately, it just sinks forever. And I mean that's why I love that there are podcasts like this that sort of resurface and rescue these sunken treasures for people to enjoy once more if we go by the logic of the film then without cbgb's there would be no bono spider-man musical so <laughs> not everything that came out of it was great but I anyway mean... moving on to your next choice now which i don't even know how to describe this 
I had to look for it in a book I had of the most offensive ever Spectrum games, expecting it to be in there. It's not in there. If you're one of the people that complains about sounds from the Spectrum when they're on this, just turn your volume down for about 10 seconds, and we'll see you after that. Okay, those were the sounds of City Bomber. David, please just be nice about this. <laughs> City Bomber was one of the first games I ever played. My dad had a Sinclair QL. He would set up the games for me and he had a whole bunch of games, none of which I could play very well at all. But this was one of the few that stuck with me. And it was only maybe a year ago where I went on YouTube to look up old Sinclair games and see if I could remember any of the ones that I played. This was one that struck me mainly because it was easy enough to play, but it was also, looking back at it, I'm surprised that it was made at all. Because City Bomber does what it says on the tin with a name like that. Basically, you're controlling this, I think it's like a fighter jet or something. It's either a helicopter or a fighter jet, I can't remember. There's a a line of skyscrapers in a row at the bottom of the screen, and you are controlling this aircraft that is moving left to right slowly, kind of like a space invader, getting lower all the time. And your goal is to make sure that craft lands safely. And that means making sure it doesn't crash into any of the skyscrapers. And how do you make sure it doesn't crash into any of the skyscrapers? By dropping bombs on them and demolishing them. One by one. You start with the tallest ones and then slowly you work your way down to the smaller ones until eventually the entire city has been leveled and you can land safely. And looking back at it in a post 9-11 world, I'm amazed this game got made. Yeah, I mean, when I look back at a lot of Spectrum games, there's some very dodgy things in them. I mean, the ones that really leap out at me were the Mad Martha series, are quite offensive to all kinds of minorities in all kinds of ways. There was the adventure game Espionage Island, where, looking back, I have some trouble about the interaction with the native women. Is not the best thing to put in the game for kids. And the one that I really, really cannot believe existed, would you ever heard of Raid Over Moscow? No, I mean... Which is basically about a Cold War nuclear strike on Moscow. And at the (laughs) end, you fight a robot in the Kremlin. Why did anyone think any of these games were a good idea? But the weirdest thing about this was I had no idea until I looked it up. It was developed by a guy called Jeff Minter, who was always in all the computer magazines in the 80s, where I assumed, because he was basically a proper full-on hippie and looked like it too, and he did very sort of trippy, fractal-inspired games that always had things like llamas in them and so on, and, you know, references to Eastern religions and so on. I'd assumed he was like this old leftover hippie from the 60s. Apparently he was about 18 or 19 when he did all these games, and this one in particular. Since then, he's really capitalised on, you know, that visionary sense of getting a psychedelic feel out of what were very... Very limited computers because he does a lot of design for the high-end consoles now. But okay. I'm surprised that he did a game this violent and this reprehensible. And I can't work out why he did. I mean, apparently, it was originally released with Vic-20 as Bomb Buenos Aires. <laughs> really? And he... This could give a clue to what was going on. Apparently, this is the only thing you can find about it. He changed the name after it was given a positive review in the Telegraph. So I suspect there was <laughs> a lot of sophisticated satire at work here. You know, working well, I mean... at the very high frequency that the people it was attacking couldn't get. And that's the only reason I can think of. I think it's from around 1982. So that would have been the height of the Falklands War. So I imagine Bomb Buenos Aires would have gone down quite well at that time with certain demographics. It's one of those things, we had a whole bunch of Spectrum games. And I can remember flashes of what each one were. But City Bomber is the only one that I was able to put a name to. There were a few others. They were the first games I ever played when I was about four. This would have been 1991 or 92. And I didn't get a Mega Drive until a couple of years after that when I became a proper video gamer. But yeah, that was the, that was one of my first influences. And it did kind of feel like a bit like a Space Invaders sort of game with the, the moving back and forth. But yeah, I couldn't believe how violent it was when I remembered it a couple of years ago. Well, when you're a kid, you don't see anything wrong with that, really. It's only you when you get older you think, no. oh, hang on, that isn't as entertaining as I thought. But do you know where you might have seen Jeff Minter recently? He's actually, he has a small role in, did you watch Bandersnatch, the interactive episode of Black Mirror? I did, yeah. He plays the novelist 
in that. No way. Jerome F. Davis, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, obviously, you know, Charlie Brooker was a huge gamer going right back to the 80s, but, you know, beyond as well. I mean, recently, when he was on Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, he was astonished to hear Richard Herring mention Kevin Toms, who programmed Football Manager. (laughs) That episode was his love letter to gaming past and present. Yeah, and particularly... And apparently there's cameos by a few people in it, but yeah, Jeff Minter's in that. I have no idea. I'm going to have to go back and watch that and go, hey, that's that guy that made that 9-11 game. Did you win Bandersnatch? Be honest. We played it on New Year's Eve uh, when we were all, we'd all had quite a few drinks. Um, so I can't really remember. A lot of the characters died. Um, so I don't know if you can count that as winning. I don't think we got the happy ending. Let's put it that way. You didn't get a message from Al Lowe either. I didn't get a message from Al Lowe saying, congratulations, you've won the game. Okay, well, we've got to something much more happy, clappy, joyful and positive for your next choice. I remembered <laughs> nothing about this bar the title i think i might never have got past the title because i was at that age around that time but here we are here's the theme song and we'll find out who these lovable little characters are afterwards Let's just get on with it. David, who were the little clowns of Happy Town? They are a bunch of vigilante psychopaths. <laughs> Honestly, this is something that we had uh, anytime we went around to visit my grandparents' house when I was very little. They only had about four videotapes. One of them was this rip-off of Cinderella that was not the Disney version. And, you know, when you're a kid, it's like anything that's not Heinz tomato ketchup. Anything that's not the actual version is going to be horrible. One of the other tapes that they had was... This show called The Little Clowns of Happy Town, which had three episodes on it, and every time we went round, we would be plonked in front of the television and this would be stuck on. I watched it again. I didn't remember anything other than the theme song. I remember um, a whole bunch of us were having a family holiday about 10 years ago, something like that. And one of my sisters mentioned, hey, do you remember that clown show that we watched around grandparents' house? And the other one sung the theme tune. So it was, it was like a PTSD flashback, honestly. I mean, I don't really know how to describe it because it's kind of like the Smurfs, except they're this collection of clowns. They're not, they look like kids in, in clown costumes, but they're not. They're actual like clowns are a species in this world. And they live in this town called Happy Town with a bunch of weird half-clown, half-animal hybrids called clownils. And they live in this kind of, I don't know if it's like a castle or a school or something like that. They're basically, their job is to spread happiness wherever they go. But the way that they do it is kind of like psychopathic in a way. One of the tasks that they're given is that the local school kids are sad. And so it's like there's some kind of vigilante superhero team where they turn up and they're supposed to cheer people up. Because they turn up and they go, how are we going to cheer these kids up? I know, let's kidnap all their pets and stage a parade for them. And that's, it's just, it was so freaky, this thing. It's just the idea that these clowns who all have this kind of way of talking, it's that kind of sort of saccharine kind of, oh, I'm so happy, look at me, oh. And kind of like the Smurfs, they use the word clown as a verb, as a noun, as anything they want. It's like every third word is the word clown. And I just remember watching this as a kid, and even at the age of four or five, I'm going, what the hell is this? And I think it only ran for about something like 10 episodes before it was pulled off the air, and it's not hard to see why. The thing I found really surprising about it when I was looking it up today, it was produced by Marvel. Yes. So at the same time that Marvel are making the Transformers cartoon and the Spider-Man cartoon, they're making this. And I just, yeah, I couldn't believe that when I heard it. But yeah, this is the sort of thing where 
that theme song and the memories of this TV show are just are burned into my brain. And yeah, it's, it wasn't a pleasant experience, let's put it that way. Well, I did some research into the background to it. I was always aware it was a Marvel production that I'd probably seen the title of, you know, in the very small print bits of the TV listings in the newspaper and thought, I don't like the sound of that at all. You know, in the papers, they would never say for programmes like that what actually happened in them. They'd just say the time it was on. Yeah. And apparently... It was made in tandem with Defenders of the Earth, which was another Marvel cartoon series, which people are always surprised that it was Marvel, but it was because they were so short of things that they owned the rights to. They bought the rights to some old newspaper strip characters, you know, Flash Gordon, the Phantom, Mandrake the Magician, and yeah. whatever Lothar actually was. Nobody's ever quite near enough to decide <laughs> or what his powers were that he was armed with. But these shows were developed in tandem with kind of an advertising consultancy who were brought on board apparently to make them more marketable now in my opinion how they did that with defenders of the earth was that they made it completely unmarketable you know you can make a million episodes of it show them endlessly there's nothing really to latch on to that would have kids running out to buy the defenders of the earth play set at christmas it just they've taken all the edges off it and little clowns are happy towns used to fall into there was a whole tranche of goody goody cartoons around then things like the get along gang the smoggies kissy fur the bloody raccoons you know the puppies new adventures on and on it went just to me admittedly i was a bit old for those sort of cartoons by the time they came out but they're the antithesis of what i had liked when i was that age you wanted to see anarchic characters almost up to no good really not just people who well the get along gang the whole point of them was they got along and the theme song said, Montgomery's the leader and he's such a good sport, the get along gang get along. That's not what you want from a cartoon. And I imagine that mostly this wasn't what you wanted either. No, the get along gang, that sounds amazing. I know what we'll do. We'll make a television show in which there is no conflict whatsoever between the characters. <laughs> that always makes for good television, doesn't it? Let's all get along famously. And Little Kinds of Happy Town is like that. It's just, it's so saccharine. Honestly, you could get diabetes just watching it. It's one of those things. I mean, again, it, it is for children and it's got, they've all got squeaky voices. The characters had names like Big Top and Blooper and Pranky. They've got a giant pet elephant whose name is Rover. Voiced by Frank Welker. It could only be voiced by oh, Frank yeah, Welker, no, Fra- frankly. Frank Welker. I mean, the man was an absolute animal machine. But it was the kind of thing where in the theme song as well, I couldn't quite make out the lyrics, but they seem to explain how the clown animals come to be as well, like how they're born. I need to have, I couldn't find the lyrics anywhere, but it's something about like how they're half clown, half animal or something like that. It's one of those classic sort of 80s, 90s TV shows where they're trying to explain the entire setup in about 30 seconds of theme song. And Earthworm Jim is like that as well. If you watch the um, theme tune for that, it's basically saying, so this is our situation and go. And yeah, it's just one of those things where they're all sort of complimenting each other. There's no arguments or anything like that. They're all just... If you didn't have a feed of clowns before watching this show, this one would just... Yeah, it's... Oh. <laughs> it just sent shudders down my spine when I was watching it earlier. And I don't know how we sat through it every Saturday afternoon as kids. Well, that's the really weird thing about it, is the guy who was basically the showrunner who created it, who wrote most of it, who, you know, did all the concepts for it. Guy called Chuck Lorre. Do you know who he is? It's either the Big Bang Theory guy or Saturday Night Live or something like that. Yeah, he went on to create loads of sitcoms, things like Grace Under Fire, Dharma and Greg, Two and a Half Men, you know, which are likeable but not classic sitcoms, but they're all predicated on people bickering or, in the case of Dharma and Greg, people who can't bicker because they're too nice, which is, you know, an interesting spin on the whole thing. But how did he get from the Little Clowns of Happy Town to there? Was he just so fed up of the, well, the advertising creatives advising him about it? (laughs) I'll show them by just having everyone fight all the time from now on. Maybe it broke him. Maybe, they, <laughs> maybe he, just, he tried making this and went, right, that's it. I can never make a show like that again. It's going to be Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men henceforth. Well, something that's occurred to me, literally just while you were speaking, is I wonder, given that you said the animals were kind of half clown, half animal, and that's how they were created, do you think the League of Gentlemen might have seen it. Because <laughs> in my head, I wasn't getting a nice, happy, clappy cartoon. I was getting Papa Lazarus' Pandemonium Carnival. <laughs> I mean, maybe. It did get a video release. I have no idea if it was if it was on television. I mean, it must have been on television if they were putting it on video, but I genuinely have no idea when it came out or when it was on or anything like that. But yeah, maybe. Maybe that's where the ideas came from. Okay. 
say, well, if you didn't want to watch The Little Clowns of Happy Town, which probably most people didn't, you could always play your next choice, which I'm not sure this is going to really come across in sound only, but let's see what happens. Okay, they were the sound, and I hesitate to even call them that, of Sonic Mountain Quest, which probably sounds a bit more exciting in your head than it actually is. David, what was it? Sonic Mountain Quest was one of a range of different bits of Sonic the Hedgehog merchandise that came out in the early 90s. And this was a time when I was obsessed with Sonic the Hedgehog. I mean, I still I still am to an extent, but this was a time when I was getting every bit of merch that I could get my hands on. And this was a sort of kind of, in the style of mousetrap, where you were given metal ball bearings, and you were given this sort of, it was kind of like an assault course on little levels. It was about maybe 10, 12 inches tall and you had little ramps and little obstacles and things like that and you had this ball bearing and using levers on the sides you had to try and navigate it to get it from the bottom to the top of the mountain through various magnets and seesaws and cranes and things like that and for someone who i mean i loved playing mousetrap but i think in the same way that everybody loves playing mousetrap board they want to set off the chain reaction they want to get everything to happen they don't care about the board game they don't care about the competitiveness. They just want to set the thing up and set it off. And that was kind of like this, the kind of the control of it. And I, I just remember having loads of fun with it, really. And I remember not being very good at it because it was so fiddly and the magnets didn't quite work. But it was at a time when Sonic the Hedgehog was the biggest video game in the world in the sort of early to mid 90s, particularly in this country more than any others, because obviously it's a Japanese game. But this was the this was the country, this was the continent where the Mega Drive outsold anything else in the world. So they were were churning out Sonic the Hedgehog merchandise at a rate like nothing else. There was no other video game or anything like that that was doing that. And they had colouring in posters. I had an A2 size colouring in poster on my wall. I had Sonic the Hedgehog bed sheets. I had a Mega Drive, obviously. I had all the games. But it was that sort of thing where they were basically taking any toy they could get, painting it blue, and sticking a spiky hedgehog on the front of it in the hope that it would sell more. And, yeah, this was one of the ones that... It didn't last very long. I, I can't remember having it for very long. I have no idea what it is. And it kind of sank without trace after a while. But I do remember it being properly fun and better than Mousetrap because you didn't have to spend half an hour setting it up and hoping that it worked. Yeah, I've got to say, I've seen a few videos online of people playing it, and it actually looks really fun. It looks for anyone who's got no idea what to picture. It's all a cross between Pocketeers, those 70s rectangular sort of mini pinball games that you got where they came in all kinds of weird varieties like Angler and Crack Crab and so on. It's all essentially just flat pinball. So it's like that cross with Screwball Scramble, which is the 3D oh, maze Screwball tilting... Scramble. I completely forgot. I had Screwball Scramble as well. Oh, that is just completely... That, that's... Yeah. I had that as well. I guess maybe my parents just realised, hey, he loves playing with little marble things. Because I had... I, I spent so many hours on Screwball Scramble. That is just completely just blasted me to the past there that yeah <laughs> but yeah it really looks like fun but that's pretty much all that is out there about it because even on the main sonic fan site the only reference to it is listing it as a prize given away in the sonic the hedgehog magazine and i wonder if it's because there used to be this weird craze people forget now playing computer games was at a time premium until relatively recently because even things like the snes and i think the early xbox you had to plug into a tv oh yeah and the tv was in constant use by the rest of the family so i remember having to plan when i could use the spectrum and there were all these attempts to kind of palm people off with ways of replicating the game when you couldn't play it because you know i remember card games based on computer games board games things like elaborate pinball things like this where they are not the same there's an element of similarity on a very superficial level but i think people maybe just resented them you know it'd be like can i have the new sonic game oh we've got you something better than that for christmas we've got you sonic's mountain quest yeah because this is a time and it's still kind of true to this day where if you want to play games you not only have to buy the game itself but you have to buy the machine that, that plays them and you know regardless of the era those always ran for between sort of two and four hundred pounds i think the mega drive was around about 200 quid and each of the games was around 50 pounds and this is something about early games is that a lot of them you couldn't save your game first of all and secondly the capacity on the cartridges was so short that they had to make the game as artificially difficult as possible so that you would either take a long time to 
to beat it and get your money's worth. That's why they would introduce high scores and things like that, so that you would keep repeating it. So, like, I think the original Sonic the Hedgehog game only has six levels in it. And you can beat it, you know, if you're if you're a decent player, you can beat it in about half an hour. I think the world record for it is something like 15 minutes. But you would play it over and over again for the um, for the high scores. And high scores aren't a thing in games anymore. I can't. Rem- I don't know that many games that actually have any sort of high score function. But this was a time when games were made artificially difficult just to prolong the length of the game because they were so expensive. And yeah, parents buying merchandise that was a lot cheaper because I think these toys would run for about 10 20 pounds each rather than buying a 50 quid game which you might only get a couple of hours of entertainment out of it was a much more enticing purchase for a parent than a mega drive game that costs 50 pounds and is going to be obsolete in a few years speaking of difficult mega drive games shall I tell you about the story I have with my exclusive copy of lemmings this was one of the things I was considering bringing on for looks unfamiliar but lemmings for those of you who don't know, it is a puzzle game from the early 90s. It's one of the biggest selling puzzle games of all time. The version that I had for the Mega Drive had some exclusive levels in it. This was a game that was known for being very difficult. Basically, the format of Lemmings is you've got these little characters, these little Lemmings that come out of one trapdoor and your goal is to get them to the exit without killing them. And you can give them little abilities, you can give them digging, you can give them climbing, you can give them building bridges, that sort of thing. And it was developed in Dundee by a company called DMA Design who went on to create a little known franchise called Grand Theft Auto. But this was the game that they made in the early 90s and it sold millions of copies and was made for almost every single games machine under the sun. If you go to Wikipedia, Lemmings has something like 25 consoles that it was released for. But the version that I had for the Mega Drive was a special edition version. It was published by a company called Sunsoft, and Sunsoft decided that this version and this version alone should have extra levels in it. Now, the standard version of Lemmings has 120 levels split into four different difficulties, fun, tricky, taxing, and mayhem. But the version I had, it had 180 levels in it. It had 60 extra levels in it that were designed to be extraordinarily difficult. I spent a good year and a half when I was about seven years old going through these extra levels and there were 180 levels in this special edition. I got to level 179 and I could not beat it. And I couldn't wrap my head around exactly how to do it. You know, you were given a limited number of abilities. The landscape was really weird and I couldn't figure it out. And I asked everyone I knew at school. Nobody had this copy of the game. No one had this version. I looked online when we got the internet. No one in the world seemed to have this version of this game, this multi-million selling game on a very popular console. No one else seemed to have this level on it. And so for years and years, I would attempt this level. I still remember the passcode you had to type in to get to it because I kept it. Like J-Y-F-T-J, that five-character passcode I will take to my grave. I will never forget that. And it was only, so I got this game in about 1995. It was only in 2007, 12 years later, that I finally found someone online who had posted a video of how to do it. And the only reason that they'd done that was because it was one of five bonus levels in special versions of the game on the Nintendo. Like, that was it. The other ones, I still, I think there are records of them out there now, but I couldn't find anyone that knew it. So I had a really, really obscure copy of a really, really popular game. And when you're talking about games that are designed to be difficult, that game was brutal. Did you need any guidance to completing Sonic Mountain Quest? <laughs> it looks quite difficult, actually. I'll say that. It looks a bit like the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 animation from Sesame Street. That kind of level of pinball madness. And I'm wondering how easy it was to get to the top of it, because I've noticed that quite a few of the online videos conveniently cut out partway through. <laughs> you know, cut to the bloke say, well, yeah, it was an interesting experiment, but blah, 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 blah. And yeah, you didn't finish it, did you, mate? I remember it being really difficult. I remember it being really fiddly, because I remember the little ball bearings, because there are, there are bits of it that are sort of swing arms, kind of cranes thing, where you're supposed to pick the ball up with the magnets on the crane and then use the knobs to swing it round to get to the next bit. And I remember it, like the magnet didn't work that well. It was a, quite a cheap magnet. And so it would, if it did pick it up, it would pick it up right on the edge of the magnet. And you'd have to drag it really slowly because if you dragged it too fast, the magnet would just pull away from the ball and it'd just be sat there. And it might even roll all the way down to the bottom again. And yeah, I remember it being fiddly as hell. I think I did beat it eventually, but it didn't take me 12 years. It didn't take me quite as long as Lemmings did. The thing about that Lemmings level, like level 179 took me 12 years to beat. Level 180, the final level of the game, took me about half an hour. 
Honestly, it was so quick. Sonic Mountain Quest, I I did beat it once or twice. I beat it more often than I beat Screwball Scramble, from what I can remember. Okay, well, for your last choice, moving on to some equally fiddly technology, which you actually had to build yourself. When the Terminator sits down after finishing his jaws, he has a hat and a pizza, and he watches his robot wars. Good night. Well, from the show that's scarier than yours, you've been bitten by robot wars. Good night. We break health and safety laws. We're on fire. We're robot wars. Good night. Okay, some fine quips there from Craig Charles at the end of several editions of Robot Wars. <laughs> David, I'm using this to represent real robots. Now, how real were they? This was a magazine that came out around about 2001. It was the peak of Robot Wars' popularity when Robomania was kind of sweeping the country. And this was a magazine that was designed to be all about robotics. They would have interviews with the people that make robots for Robot Wars. They would have interviews with scientists of robotics, things like that. The gimmick of this magazine magazine was that you would be able to build your own robot by getting the components that came with the magazine every week. And we are talking some big components. I mean, you're building something that was maybe about eight or nine inches long. It was a little robot called Cybot. And I remember seeing this. I managed to see the advert on TV and convince my mom to let me buy issue one. And it cost something like $6.99, which is quite expensive for a magazine. And the very first issue came with this enormous plastic frame of components because they wanted you to build the robots chassis and its wheels with the first issue to get people to buy it. So this thing took up something like an A3 size piece of paper. That was a kind of plastic frame that it came in. And I originally thought, I don't know where I got this idea from, but the reason my mum let me buy it was because I said, oh, it's only six issues. You have the whole robot built in six issues. And then we got to issue six and I still only had the chassis. And she went <laughs> into the news agent and she came back and said, there are 36 issues of this magazine. So if we're spending $6.99 or $5.99 every two weeks, you're talking a good couple of hundred quid to build this robot over the course of maybe a year. And I remember building it. I remember loving the magazine. I remember loving the fact that you could build your own robot because it was designed for kids to be able to build. There was no soldering. There was no building your own circuit boards or anything like that. Everything was just plug and play. The problem was that it got to about issue five and the way that the robot was built, it had two main wheels, two proper tires, and then it had a little caster wheel at the front, kind of like a trolley wheel. And that was made of the cheapest plastic in the world and it snapped after about two hours of me trying to put the thing together. So I spent more time when I was building that robot trying to fix the damn caster wheel than I did actually playing with the thing. But then I eventually built it. And it was really cool. I have to say, it had light sensors on the front. It had sonar on the front. So you could set it up and it would follow lights. It would follow torches. It wouldn't crash into anything. It could sense when it was going to collide with something. You could program it to follow lines on the floor. And it had like antennae with LEDs on it. And it would come with different levels of circuit boards that you could plug into each other and it was all just completely plug and play. I remember really enjoying it. It wasn't the best plastic in the world, I think it's fair to say. I did have to put a bit of super glue to it from time to time, but it was really, really clever when you all put it together and the electronics worked really well and then you'd build a remote control for it that you could uh, control it with. Eventually, mine kind of broke and it fell apart. It was kind of, it looked like a kind of like a ladybug or something. It was that kind of shape, that kind of domed shape to it. And after a while, when they were still trying to figure out how to sell copies of the magazine and come up with interesting stuff for kids to buy, they sold a Formula One version of it, which I took off. I dismantled the entire robot, put on the Formula One version, and then couldn't get it off again. So I've now got somewhere in my bedroom at home, in my parents' house, there is this Formula One car version of this robot that has sat there just <laughs> gathering dust because I took off the original shell and then I, I can't remember if it broke or if something snapped, but basically I was left with this red and white giant Formula One car version of this robot that hasn't seen the light of day in about 15, 20 years. Well, you could always have entered it in. I mean, I find it really interesting to look back. There was a weird phase when robotics was quite a big mainstream thing. So as I've said, it was entirely on the back of Robot Wars. But I'm interested if you share my theory about this. I think the appeal of Robot Wars initially, the fact that it took off with such a massive audience of people who weren't science experts, people who weren't interested in robotics at all, wasn't anything to do with the presentation, wasn't anything to do with people forget Jeremy Clarkson was the original host. Yep, for season one. I think it was to do with the fact it felt quite, in a sense, punky. It felt DIY. The guys who built the robots seemed normal. They all felt a bit like they'd been cobbled together from household implements. Obviously, they hadn't. 
but they had that look to them, which I think was deliberate in a lot of cases. There were oh, fun yeah. matches. And then it all changed when somebody built a robot called Razor, which was designed <laughs> to win Robot Wars. That was the only thing about it. It just went through everything, literally like a Razor, destroyed everything in its path, and it just became boring. Razor won all the time. And that's when, well, it didn't really jump the shark, did it? When it jumped Sergeant Bash, I suppose. But <laughs> that, to me, that's the story of Robot Wars, and then everything like this faded away after that. This would have been when I was maybe 12 or 13. It was the peak of, like, I, everyone in the schoolyard was talking about Robot Wars. There were PlayStation games made of it with Jonathan Pierce's commentary. There were Game Boy games made of it. There was real Robots the magazine, obviously. But it was this triple bill on a Friday from 6 o'clock on BBC2 that was The Simpsons, Robot Wars, and Red Dwarf. I think it was something like that. Maybe Red Dwarf was actually later on. I can't remember. But it was those were the top three things. And I just remember sitting down at 6 o'clock and just absolutely loving that show. And the, the best one in the world was, my favourite was always Hypnodisc. Have you ever yes! seen... Yes! Hypnodisc was my favourite as well. Hypnodisc was incredible. And again, I don't know how it never won a championship. If you're looking for something hilarious to watch, go and watch Hypnodisc's first fight. It goes up against this kind of dinosaur-shaped thing that a couple of kids have built in their garage. And it tears it to shreds, literally <laughs> just strips it down to the bare skeleton <laughs> underneath. I have never heard Jonathan Pierce laugh so hard as he did. Because we went in thinking, what on earth is this thing? I've never seen that spinny thing before. What's it think? It's got its got chainsaw the wrong way around. And then it just goes in and it's like a blowtorch through butter. It's just, it's unbelievable. And I just remember thinking that was the funniest thing. And then there was the following year when um, Chaos 2 decided to flip robots out of the arena. And suddenly that became a new way to win. Then they started bringing in sort of spin-off shows like Robot Wars Extreme, which introduced obstacle courses and challenges and things like that. And they found ways to keep it fresh. It did get boring after a while, and I think it was when BBC lost the rights to it and it went to Channel 5, because it had one series on Channel 5, which I think was Series 6 or Series 7, something like that. But it had one series on Channel 5 where it kind of died a death. I don't know if it had run its course or whether it was kind of... Because it was kind of part of that sort of style of 90s game show along with things like Get Your Own Back and shows like that where it was all about the spectacle and Robot Wars had a very steampunky kind of thing with fire and, you know, sparks flying and things like that. Craig Charles obviously had his leather jacket with the strips hanging down from the sleeves which is the weirdest jacket. I wanted one so much as a kid, but I couldn't imagine what the bullies would say if I turned up at school with one. It was the biggest show in the world for me when I was that age. And so I was eager to get my hands on anything robot related. And Real Robots was the magazine for me at that time. I spent more time playing with that robot than I did reading the magazine. Well, just to close on, I should compare it with my experience of trying to make a robot, which is accounts of this story differ, but the details as I remember it are one Christmas in, I think, around the early to mid-80s, we were all talking about how great it would have been if one of us had got a robot for Christmas. We had an idea that we could build one where we got lots of different sized cardboard boxes that Christmas things are coming, sellotaping them together into kind of a rough, like, old-style science fiction blocky robot shape with... A I think wrapping paper tubes for arms, you know, the long nice. cardboard rolls. Yeah. I think we put implements in it, like maybe a tape recorder so that could be the voice. And the theory was, if we put some batteries in it, not if we put them in anything in it, if we just put some batteries into it, <laughs> it would start working. Just sort of tape them to the inside. I've never felt such a wave of childhood disappointment <laughs> as when our robot didn't immediately get up. And I don't even know what we would have gotten to do, to be honest. <laughs> it sounds like a sort of robot version of the snowman. You've just built the shape of something and expecting it to come to life. <laughs> I love that. I, I absolutely love that. That's brilliant. I mean, the, the one I had was a little more active than that, shall we say. <laughs> but yeah, little cyber. I'll just, I had, I had many happy hours building and playing with that little thing. Well, if you still got it around, I'll be it in the Formula One gear. We could get them together, your robot and mine, again, to be Oh, we could take our own robot one. <laughs> David, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been brilliant. Cheers. The Camberwick Green Procrastination Society. Articles, columns and more, some previously unpublished. More details at timworthington.org.